Um, really good to have you with us. Um, Matt and his family have been on a trip to Ireland for a week or so, um, a couple of oh, just a few days. Uh, so we're really glad to have them with us. Uh, Matt uh, lectures in Old Testament at Westminster Theological Centre in London, uh, but is about to go this summer. Uh, they're moving as a family to Vancouver, uh, where Matt's going to be lecturing in Old Testament there, uh, where, where I used to study uh, once upon a time. Uh, wonderful place, wonderful college and wonderful city. Uh, so they're gearing up for a big family adventure uh, of moving there. Um, so uh, kind of given Matt a, a free swing this morning of just share with us some of his love for the Old Testament and help us uh, learn to love the Old Testament again. Um, so Matt, do you want to come up and I will uh, just pray for you uh, before you, you speak. So let me pray. Um, Father, thank you so much for Matt and Abby and their family. Thank you for their willingness uh, to come and be with us this morning and share with us. Um, Father, thank you for the, the gifts that you've given Matt um, in communicating uh, the truths of your word and unpacking them for people. Um, Father, thank you for the love and passion you've given him, especially for the Old Testament. Um, and Father, I want to pray you would help us this morning to be really attentive to the things that you want to say to us by your spirit and by your word. Uh, help us to be really humble and ready to learn. Uh, and I pray there might be something that we can take away this morning that would do deep work in us and be planted deeply in our hearts. Um, pray for Matt that you'd give him great freedom to share the things that are on his mind and his heart. Um, and I pray he'd be encouraged by being here this morning. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, it's really good to be here at MCF with all of you in this really warm and loving community. So uh, it's been a pleasure to worship with you already this morning and to hear some of your testimonies and uh, what God is doing in this community. So uh, as John Mark said, I'm uh, academic dean and lecturer in Old Testament at Westminster Theological Center, and my wife and I and our family have been there for in England for seven years, having been in Germany and in Israel before that. So we've been really living outside of the States for uh, 10 years, and now we're headed back to North America. Um, but um, it's been a, a privilege to work with uh, Westminster Theological Center for these past seven uh, years and to see God do a really tremendous work, including um, here in Northern Ireland where we have a hub. So we have hubs around the UK where people can study theology part-time. So if anyone is uh, interested in that, uh, do come talk to me or to Rose Linus, who's on our trustees, um, and she's here as well. Uh, if that's something that interests you, please do uh, let, let us know. Uh, so the, the talk uh, that I have this morning is uh, called A Love Supreme. Shout out to John Coltrane there, if anyone uh, picks up that reference. Could the, could the worship band come and play uh, A Love Supreme? Uh, and uh, so a love supreme and um, we're looking at a New Testament passage and you might be wondering well where's the Old Testament I thought we we're going to talk about the Old Testament well uh, as with pretty much every text in the New Testament you can't talk about it without also the same time talking about the Old Testament so we'll be looking at the Old Testament background to this passage and where there's an exchange between Jesus and a young ruler in some translations, or a lawyer in others, and this man is questioning Jesus about the greatest commandment. 
So before we jump into reading that, let's pray and ask God to guide our, our hearts. Lord, we ask that um, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together in this place would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so if you uh, want to follow along, I'm going to read from Luke tw- uh, 10. Maybe, I don't know if you're able to advance the slides as I read. Can you do that? Okay, great. Thank you. So Luke 10, starting in verse uh, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus replied, go and do likewise. So this is a a fairly familiar passage. And um, I think for for a lot of us, you know, it's easy when when there's a part of the Bible that we've heard quite a number of times to check into, kind of enter into autopilot as we're reading it, not really pay attention to some of the things that the passage might be communicating. And, uh, and one, one little uh, thing that I think is always helpful when you're reading the New Testament is in some of your print Bibles, if you have a print Bible, it will, it will give you little footnotes as you're reading through. Like it'll have a little A next to, um, in verse 27, so if you look in your Bible, sometimes uh, if you have a print Bible, it'll give you a footnote, and it says that's from Deuteronomy 6.5. So then you know that whichever passage you're reading is quoting from or evoking an Old Testament verse. And then you can go back to that verse and look at it and see what the context is, and then come back to the New Testament, and that you have a kind of richer experience as you do that. It's like, it's like a little hyperlink back to the Old Testament, that then opens up a world that you can read um, as the uh, kind of the background music as you're listening to the New Testament then. So knowing the Old Testament background gives you the, some of the theme music that the New Testament writers want you to hear as you're reading the New Testament. So this passage is kind of chock full of them. Uh, not all of them are going to be footnoted, but you should at least have two in verse 27. So we're going to look at the Old Testament background, and I've, I've outlined on the, on the screen here 
uh, the four main passages that this exchange between, between Jesus and the young ruler are evoking so that we can hear them as we read the New Testament. So let's look at this first one, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. So if you go back to uh, Deuteronomy 6, after this young, this, uh, young ruler um, asked Jesus, which is the greatest law, Jesus turns the question back around to him and says, well, how do you read it? And I, I think Jesus is, is always reading a situation well, because it says um, not that the, the, the young ruler came with an earnest question to Jesus, but it says he stood up to test Jesus. So usually it's not the student who's testing the teacher, but in this situation, somehow there was maybe a lack of trust or skepticism or just wanting to see who Jesus really was. How does this guy read the law? So for a, a, a young Jewish person in the first century, that's how you kind of figure out the measure of a person is how they read the law. So he says, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus turns it back to him. Well, how do you read it? So he makes this guy kind of play his cards, and Jesus is pleased with how he answers. So he goes back to Deuteronomy 6, and let me just read verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols in your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So this part of Deuteronomy is known among Jewish people as the Shema. So the Shema is simply, that word Shema means hear. So verse 4 starts with that word hear. O Israel, pay attention. Hear can be translated obey as well. So listen, Israel. Obey, Israel. Hear. And what is it that they're supposed to hear? They're supposed to hear that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or it could be translated, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And so what this statement is that the Jews in Jesus' time would have said twice a day in the beginning at the end of the day, what it's saying is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is our God. He alone. He is the one who deserves our love and our loyalty. So it starts out with that kind of orientation to, to the one to whom we owe all of our allegiance So the word love here, so hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love is the next commandment, so hear and love. Love in the Old Testament has a sense of orienting your life toward. It's not just about your emotional state when you think about God. So so Moses wasn't saying to the people, when you think about God, you should get warm, fuzzy feelings in your heart. You should should have kind of... uh, uh, a kind of warming effect when you think about God. Maybe it's that too. But really what Moses is calling the people to is to give their allegiance to Yahweh because he knows, as he goes on, if you read on in chapter 6, Moses recognizes the fact that there are competing loyalties in the world, in the land that Israel is about to go into. There are other gods calling for their attention. There are idols that the people are going to be tempted to worship and give worth to. 
and to bow down to. They're going to be tempted not just to abandon God completely, but maybe to try to worship God alongside other gods, like the more the merrier. This happened later on for Israel when, when, they, you know, when they faced times of, of uh, lack of rain. They would want to bring Baal into the picture a bit. Baal's the kind of um, weather god. So let's bring the weather god in and Yahweh. Two's better than one, right? And Moses is saying to the people, no, love the Lord your God, love him alone. So love is that kind of first command to give your loyalty to Yahweh, your allegiance to him. So that's the, the place where this young ruler starts, and Jesus commends him for this. And if, if you look on in the, in, in the verse here, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's that orientation with all your soul, which in Hebrew means your person, your whole body. God wants us to, to give ourselves completely to him. What we do with our bodies matters. And then he says, and with all your might, or with all your, in Hebrew the word is ma'od, which means all your, your muchness. It's a kind of funny word to use because it's, a, it's, a, um, oh, it's an adverb, actually, your, your very. <clears throat> so how do you give your very to God? One, one person said it could be translated with all your oomph. And uh, so love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your person, with all your oomph. Uh, or it could be um, with all your resources. So this is um, one way I've conceptualized it. I did draw that myself. Um, <laughs> proud of that. So, so it starts with the heart and then with all your person and with all of your resources. And uh, so there's no part of our life that's not devoted to God completely. So what we do with our orienta- with the orientation of our lives, with our bodies, and with even our money, and the things God has given to us. My, um, an example of this I, I've seen modeled in my, my parents. Uh, when, when we were kids, one of the things my, um, my parents would do on occasions uh, with us as a family is they would, they would lay out all their finances... And, and talk through with us how they were spending their money and how they were giving their money. And so I remember one, one time I was, a, I was about maybe the age of my oldest son, 10, um, and my, my dad was explaining to us what they, were, what they had to pay in taxes, what they had to pay in, in the mortgage, and what they were tithing. And I was horrified because I realized that my parents were paying more in taxes then they were tithing. And, and uh, you know, so I don't know what the bracket was. Let's say it was maybe 30%. And I, and I thought, you're, you're giving less than 30% to God? And, um, and my parents, rather than saying, well, son, you don't understand. If we gave away more than 30%, that we wouldn't have enough to live on and blah, blah, blah. Um, my, my dad took the challenge and he said, okay, well, for this next period, I can't remember if it might have been like six months or a year, um, We'll give more in tithing than we will in uh, our taxes. And so for that time, that's what they did, and which I always look back on and, and admire them for because my dad recognized that modeling this giving over of all of your resources to Yahweh is really important. 
and it's stuck with me my whole life, and we did survive as a family. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and impress these things on your children is the next part of that passage. So love is something that, that has a ripple effect outward in the passing on of the things that God has given us and sown into our lives to the next generation, and I would say in a church community to the people around us as well. There was, a, um, there was a study done by the Bible Society uh, a few years ago, and they were looking at what are the factors that contribute most to the passing on of the faith to older youth or youth um, in Christian families. And so what is it that enables kids to pick up the faith of their parents and continue on down the road? And And the thing that they isolated in the study, and I thought it was really interesting because it ties into this passage, is the ability to articulate your faith to the next generation. That that's one of the the leading signs of of children's ability, youth's ability to take on the, the faith of their parents. And so it's not just that parents model the faith, although that's essential, they also have to be able to say, here's why we do what we do. Here is, here's what we're doing here. How, here's how we're reasoning through this with the Bible. And you don't have to be a, a kind of academic to do that. It's just being able to talk about these things as you sit at home, as you walk along the road, as you lie down and when you get up. And that's what Moses is saying, because he recognizes that somehow from the wilderness generation to the next generation, the faith had to be handed on if the people were going to survive in the land and so on down the road. And in our faith communities, I think that's important for us as a church to be able to articulate the things that God has done in our lives and be able to talk about them along the way with our kids, with our friends, with our colleagues, with our neighbors. Okay, so that's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Then this young ruler says, and love your neighbor as yourself. And what he's done here is he's strung in, he's pulled in another passage from the Old Testament, that book that Christians often avoid called Leviticus. Who would have thought? Can anything good come out of Leviticus? Well, yes, Um, the command to love your neighbor. So Leviticus 19, if you go there, uh, starting in verse 17, it says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. There's the heart again. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone in your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. All right, so the next command that's tied intimately to the first command is love of neighbor. You can't separate love for God from love for your neighbor. And it's interesting in this passage, so Leviticus chapter 19 is dealing with kind of neighborly issues all the way through this chapter. And verses 17 through 18 come at the end of a section that has to, has to do with justice and the way we treat our neighbors. And it talks about things that you can't really legislate. You know, Mo- Moses can't um, put, you know, bind someone and, and punish them for hating someone in their heart because what happens in your heart is between you and God. But he's commending to the people this, this need 
to get their heart rate right toward their neighbor at the same time that they're getting their heart right toward God. And they weren't even allowed to bear grudge against anyone in their community. One of the, um, one of the stereotypes about the Old Testament that I'm, I often confront uh, since I teach Old Testament is the idea that the, the Old Testament is about wrath and anger and the New Testament is about love. And what we see here is that rooted in the Old Testament is this command to love your neighbor. And that's where Jesus and people in, in his time got that from. So the Old Testament is the, is the formative environment in which Jesus grew up such that he taught the things he taught. You know, this, he, he grew up reciting Torah, learning the Old Testament, and then in his teaching you can hear that it's infused with the things of the Old Testament. It's really amazing. Um, so then we, we, have, so we have this command to love your neighbor as yourself, the same love that you have or concern that you have to protect yourself, to feed, to clothe, to take care of yourself and your immediate family is what you're to extend and show toward your neighbors. So then it says in Luke that this young ruler wanted to justify himself. And he says, and who is my neighbor? Where do I draw the line? between who's in and who's out. There's, there's got to be a limit to this, right? I can't just go on loving everyone without any boundaries. And Jesus then enters into it, tells him a story, because essentially what this young ruler has left out of his understanding of neighbor is Leviticus 19, 33, and 34. So Jesus says, yes, you've answered correctly, but you've missed out on another key part of neighborliness. So he tells the story of the Good Samaritan about a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So there's a 16-mile road, if, uh, a kind of rocky ravine that you go down all the way to Jericho with lots of places that you can hide out along the way. So the man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he's unnamed here, but probably a Jewish person who has been at the temple, we can assume. Uh, but it doesn't say for sure. Has anyone ever been to Israel and gone down the, the, the route between Jerusalem and Jericho? Yeah. So this thing called the Wadi Kilt. And uh, it's a really deep, rocky ravine. And apparently this man is attacked by robbers and stripped of his clothes, beat and left half dead. So that sets up the kind of key conflict in the story, the the crisis situation that then Jesus unpacks along the way. But let me go back for a moment to Leviticus. Let's go back to the Old Testament to think through how Jesus might be um, reading the Old Testament and then developing the story out of it. It says, in um, as, as chapter 19 of Leviticus comes to a close, it says this, Verse 33, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not ill-treat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, your God. So the same kind of love that we're supposed to show to our immediate neighbors 
is the love that we're supposed to show to foreigners. Or Jesus actually frames it differently. He says, the foreigner is your neighbor. The one who's residing among you is your neighbor. And he calls the people to remember who they were. So a lot of, the, a lot of our boundary drawing and our, our efforts to, to kind of to uh, circle the wagons and, and close the, the circle a bit tighter comes from forgetfulness about who we are. So remember, Paul in the New Testament says, you were outsiders to the covenant who have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So all of us in this room were outsiders who have been brought in to the covenant. And and that and when we forget where, who we are and where we've been, just like the Israelites were tempted to forget that they had been slaves in Egypt and were brought into a land by God, that's when we forget who our neighbor is as well. Because we say, we're the, we're the ones who are native-born. You're the outsider. You deserve to be treated differently. So Jesus, in this, um, in this parable then, challenges his audience about who the neighbor is. And he has the example of a priest and a Levite and then the Samaritan. My, my wife and I were uh, on a road trip a number of years ago, back in 2006, and we left Vancouver. And we went on a month-long road trip around the United States to um, uh, just camp out for basically a month. And our, our strategy that we developed on the fly was, hey, let's, let's try to not pay for any campsites along the way. Let's... let's uh, um, well, we wanted to save money, but also it was a kind of fun challenge as well. So what we would do is we would go into a town and maybe uh, go to a church and say, hey, could we put up our tent in your uh, churchyard? And it's, it's amazing when you do this that, uh, at least in, in the U.S., and I would assume here, uh, people are eager to show hospitality. And, and one time we had just been in the Grand Canyon, and we uh, went to a McDonald's, and we said... We were, we were pretty exhausted, having just um, hiked uh, in the Grand Canyon for a long time. And it's very hot and dry and you know, dusty, and, and we were worn out. And we went into this McDonald's, and we said to the um, woman who was working there, Hi, do you know anywhere we could put up our tent? And she said, Yeah, here's my address. You can put it up in my back garden. And so, uh, which was very surprising, she said, My husband's going to come home later. Just let him know I said it was fine. Right? So, okay, we'll, we'll take this risk. So we went there, and we set up our tent. It was a, it was a kind of, uh, I don't know if you call them trailer parks here, or what, if you have an equivalent term, mobile home park, something like that. Anyway, so um, we set up our tent, and it turned out this was a, a Navajo family, so a, a Native American family, and they call themselves the Diné. And um, this, uh, this, this woman then uh, came home later, but her husband welcomed us in. He took us into their their home and proceeded to, we had a conversation for about two hours with him. But what was so striking was that here we were, um, white people in the United States going on to a, a Navajo reservation, and it's the Navajo family that invites us in and shows us hospitality. I mean, if you know the, the long history of Native American, uh, the treatment of Native Americans, it's, a, it's an awful history with a lot of injustice and ill treatment. Um, the Navajo people were kind of 
corralled onto a reservation uh, without any, you know, and promise after promise was broken toward them. But here these people come along the road and they say, come into our family's home. You know, come into our back garden and you can stay there. Uh, we welcome you. And she knew her husband would do the same. And so I think, I feel like this is, this is the kind of dynamic in this story, although more extreme, is that this, uh, this man has been beaten bloody and it's the Samaritan who acts like the neighbor toward this man who's been beaten. So before that, though, it talks about, um, let me just skip ahead for a moment here. Um, it talks about a priest who comes by. So the priest has just been at the temple in Jerusalem, and the priest is going down the road, and it says he came, he saw the man, and he passed by. Right? So here's the priest whose, whose um, job it is to uh, maintain the temple worship system. He came, he saw, he passed by. Same with the Levite. The Levite's job is to help the priests in doing what they're supposed to do at the temple. And he came, and he saw, and he passed by. The other job of priests is to look after the needs of people in in around the community, around the, the land. So they were to disperse the donations that were given to the temple to those in need. So they had a job to look after the needy. And he came, he saw, he passed by. And the Samaritan, the Samaritans are the people who live just to the north of Jerusalem and who the Jews were at, at real odds with. Not just kind of mild conflict. I mean, people were killed. There, were, there was bloodshed between them. And it's he who came, he saw, same two verbs, and then he took pity. He showed mercy. So let me back up for a moment. I, uh, I have a little picture here. Uh, one of our uh, hub church leaders after the Manchester bombings in, in the arena recently he, uh, he lived right down the, uh, the road from a mosque where the man who bombed uh, the arena had, um, had apparently some affiliations. And he, uh, he, he put this sign on himself. He said, I leave, lead Ivy Church, same street, same city, same grief, free hugs, hugs not hate. And he put this on and he went down the street to, um, to stand outside the mosque to say to the the Muslim community in his neighborhood, who um, at that moment was hated more than any, that I'm your neighbor, I stand next to you, I stand with you. And that took courage, and he took a lot of flack for it, got a lot of hate mail um, from it. He said that it made great Lou roll. Um, and uh, and so, so after, after doing that, the next week he was at church, and they had a Sunday night service, and there was a, they had extra security around because of what had just happened recently. And I should say, too, that um, their church was not unaffected, so he was not cold toward those who had suffered as well. I mean, he was, he was uh, pastoring people through the grief of that tragedy. And they got a knock at the door, and um, those who were kind of standing guard at the door just to make sure who was coming in and what, what their motives were, he said, I think you better come to the door to Anthony, who's the pastor. So he went to the, the door, and there standing at the door were a number of people, a number of Muslims um, in hijabs and, and, um, and whatnot. And he said, uh, hi, uh, can we help you out? And they said, 
you showed love toward us this week. We wanted to reciprocate. And they had brought all this food. They had a huge box of food. And he said, yeah, come on in. So they, they laid it out on a, on a table, huge table, um, and fed the church. And they said, can we stay through your service? So here, here they were, you know, week after this had happened, and this Muslim community from down the street was sharing in the worship service um, with, uh, with this Ivy Church. And I feel like th- this is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about, that love toward the neighbor who you're most likely to exclude. It's not just the, the exotic foreign neighbor. You know, so, someone from a distant land who, who comes and visits, and, and you're kind of, you might even have a, uh, you know, a, uh, just a sense of like, well, you know, what harm could they cause? They're from somewhere far away. He picks the outsider who's right outside the circle of the community that they have the most conflict with. And that's who he chooses to tell this story about. It's the Samaritan who acts like the neighbor toward him. But I want to um, talk about one more Old Testament verse here uh, before we wrap up and we need to close here. Hosea 6 6. Um, this is, um, I'll just uh, show you here briefly. Hosea 6 6 is where the prophet says to the people, I, this is Yahweh speaking, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And I think this is a really important passage. The expert in the law knows what's just transpired in the story um, because Jesus turns to him and says, and who is it who's acted like the neighbor? The one who had mercy on him, the man says. Mercy is an interesting word, and I think it's specifically evoking this passage in the Old Testament. It's like the hyperlink, remember? For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So who are the two people that had passed by? It's the priest who's been sacrificing It's the Levite who's helping with the sacrificial system. They've done the lesser thing. The Samaritan has done the greater thing. That's what God desires. And I think sometimes, um, you know, there's a real challenge here for us because for those of us who gather weekly to worship God, there's a real challenge. For I desire mercy, not Worship services. What if we put it that way? For I desire mercy, not praise music. I desire mercy, not another sermon. There's a real challenge for us because the things that we hold as very important as a community and in some extent hold us together as a community require that we tie together all of our praise given to God with that love for the neighbor, and that we remember that the neighbor is the outsider, the one we're most likely to exclude, that these things need to happen together. And only then can we offer right worship and right sacrifice to God. So let's stand together and we'll close in prayer. Lord, we accept this invitation to become the neighbor, to the one who we're most likely to exclude, to the one who is in need, the one we're tempted to pass by. 
And we remember the, the call in the Old Testament to love God with all of our hearts and that we can't do that without simultaneously loving our neighbor. And I thank you for this community here. And I pray that you would strengthen our resolve to meet the needs of those who maybe we would otherwise pass by. I pray, I pray that this community would be marked by the showing of mercy and by right worship of God. And we commit to you those in need in this community as well, for Joan, who was mentioned earlier, and others who are suffering with headaches and um, other illnesses. Lord, would you show mercy toward those who are ill? And would you show your healing power by your spirit? And I pray, too, for effectiveness in the showing of love to this wider community, too, that they would know that we're Christians by our love. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.